0: 1 Kings 3, beginning in verse 7. 1 Kings 3, 7. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant and offered burnt offerings, and he made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants." And I'll pray. Lord, we again just thank you for um, your work in us, God, Thank you, God, for saving us through faith in Christ alone. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit who teaches us and guides us and leads us into all that is true. And we just want to hear you again, God. And I pray that our hearts would be responsive, humble, and teachable, God, that you might be magnified in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were around last week, you know that this is um, pretty much the same passage that we were in. But I just want to go a little bit further in this chapter and to highlight some more things that are here. This is obviously um, Solomon um, having a very personal encounter with God at God's initiative. God has appeared to him in a dream and has spoken to him, told him he can ask whatever he wish. And Solomon chooses to ask for wisdom, that is his one big pressing need. He knows that as king, he will have people come before him, and he will have to make life and death decisions, and he sees he is totally inadequate for it. God made him king, but God did not make him adequate. And I made the point last week that there is no relationship, no responsibility that you will ever have that you are adequate for in yourself. We can do nothing apart from Christ. And so Solomon, in great humility, recognizes this and it pleases God. He's essentially saying, God, I can't, but you can. And I thank you that you are available in me to live the life that you have called me to live. It's the exact same way that we see that Jesus lived his life as a man on this earth. I can't, you can, I thank you, God, that you were able for this. Jesus said he never said a word, never did a thing, except he first heard from the Father, saw from the Father, and the Father worked through him. Now we see that Solomon is showing us this is what a man was made to live like. This is God's design. I want to now pick it up here in verse 8, where he says, Your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. This shows Solomon's um, high regard for God and his people. He recognizes that they are not Solomon's people. He does not possess them, he does not own them. He is a shepherd of God's people, but they are God's flock. It shows that he recognizes that they were chosen by God, and he says they are a great people. Not really. They were a small people. Israel has always been a small nation. It was no different in the days of Solomon. They were the largest, perhaps, that they would ever have been, but nonetheless, in comparison to the surrounding nations, they were a small nation. So what Solomon is telling us here is that he has a very high view of God's people, and so should we. And by that, I mean both the church and Israel, because both are called God's people. One of the ways that you can figure out if the author you're reading is emergent or not And it's hard to define an emergent writer because they're hard to pin to the wall. But one telltale indication of an emergent church is that they tend to be very positive and accommodating to the world and very negative about the body of Christ. And it's reversed. We ought to be very positive about the body of Christ and have our doubts and our concerns about the world. The body is not as it should be, but it is Christ's bride. Israel was not as it should have been. Idolatry was still rampant in Israel. And yet Solomon is high on Israel because they are God's people chosen by God. And we should be high on the church. No church is perfect. No Christian is perfect. But we belong to Jesus. And God has said that we've been made complete in Him. And He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I'm always challenged when I read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians and see how positive Paul is on the church. And of all churches, the Corinthian church. And he calls them blameless. He calls them saints. He calls them the church of God. We should be high on the church and not negative about it. And I believe this would also go for Israel, the Jewish people. They are still God's chosen people. That has not changed. Paul is very clear in this on the book of Romans. He has not rejected his people that to them belong, and he lists a long list of the prophets, the words, the scriptures, and he just goes on through. And and he's very clear that they are the chosen people of God. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says that, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 are focused on Israel. Nothing has changed. And God made a covenant with Israel, and He has not broken His covenant. It's not to say that they are perfect. They are not, but they are nonetheless God's chosen people, and we should be very positive about that. He asked for an understanding heart to judge, to discern between good and evil. And this is a good thing. God is pleased. It is good to be able to judge rightly, it is good. Today, it seems that um, the only thing that people are willing to stand in judgment of is God's Word. And everything else is just okay. We ought to desire to judge and to discern. This is a virtue, not a vice. Now, we know that any good thing can be perverted and twisted And exercising judgment is a good thing. It is an attribute of God. God is judge. God is just. And we have been made in his image to exercise judgment. That can become condemnatory. It can become judgmental. And that is not our prerogative. But we can't be a people who stop thinking. We ought to be critical thinkers. We ought to be people who discern and who are wise and careful We know the difference between good and evil, and we're not afraid to call it what it is. The reason that Adam and Eve got in trouble, I believe, is not just that they disobeyed God and ate from a forbidden tree, but it was the nature of what the tree was itself. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the problem wasn't that they knew now good and evil, but that they sought a source outside of God for the knowledge of good and evil. God wants us to know the difference between good and evil. He wants us to be able to discern and judge rightly. We have an entire book of the Bible, Proverbs, dedicated for us knowing the difference between what is right and what is wrong, what is wisdom and what is folly. It is a good thing to seek after wisdom. Proverbs 4 and Proverbs 6 in particular are just filled with admonitions of why we need to be seeking after wisdom and to be learned learn to be people of good discernment and discretion. "'Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction.'" When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget. Do not turn aside from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. And on and on in these verses in, in Proverbs. Wisdom, the ability to judge and to discern, comes from God who is truth and light. Solomon is not the only example of this. We also saw it with, with Daniel. And not just wisdom of spiritual things, wisdom and discernment when it comes to good and evil, but just knowledge itself, the ability to learn, truly comes from God. Daniel and his friends, they, they excelled above all of their other contemporaries because God gave them the ability. As we're going to see here with Solomon, God gave him more than just the ability to discern between right and wrong, good and evil, but God gave him knowledge in every branch of knowledge that there was. It comes from God. I think as Christians we don't think about that enough. I remember so many times in Bible college and seminary, practically a daily basis, just going, God, I I just feel like I'm hitting a wall. And it was always a reminder that though I may not be naturally as smart as someone else, all knowledge and wisdom comes from God. And we are to seek Him for the ability and for the knowledge itself. God wants to give us these things. We study, but it is God who gives the ability, the knowledge, and the wisdom It is folly and pride to think otherwise. We finished up last Sunday by me focusing on that the whole answer of God, the the opportunity that was given to Solomon, the response of God was all in the context of a dream. Verse 5, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. In verse 15, Solomon awoke and behold, it was a dream. Why is that being emphasized? I believe when Solomon woke up that morning, he did not feel smarter than the day before. He did not feel wiser than the day before. Now, I feel um, very strongly about that, in part because in my lifetime of asking God for wisdom, and I have asked God for wisdom on a daily basis, sometimes dozens of times a day, and there has never been a single time that I have felt wise after asking God for wisdom. Not a single time. If you have, I'd like to hear your story. <laughs> and yet James chapter 1 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. And so that verse troubled me, honestly, for, for a long, long time. Because I would ask and never feel that God was answering my prayer. Never felt wise. And then it, I discovered it doesn't say if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will make him feel wise. It doesn't say that. It says that God gives him wisdom. Let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea draws, you know, tossed to and fro. So we're to ask and we are to believe. I think Solomon woke up the next day and he had to make a decision. Was it just a dream? Because there's nothing in my personal experience that tells me that I am any smarter, any wiser than I was before I went to bed last night. Was it merely a dream? Or did God actually speak to me? Now not only did God promise him wisdom, he also promised him great wealth. When Solomon woke up the next morning, he did not have a mound of gold next to him. But yet God says, I have given you great wealth. Look what it says in verse 13. And I have also given you what you have not asked riches and honor, so that there will be none like you among the kings, like you all your days. This is past tense. Just like he says in verse 12, I have done, according to your words, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. But there was no gold and silver next to him when he woke up. So that tells us that if there was no gold and silver next to him and yet it's done, that Solomon had to take that by faith. Why would the wisdom be any different? He didn't feel wise, I believe, but he had to take my faith that what God has said, God has done. The reason this is important is for two, three, two verses in the New Testament. Hebrews eleven sixteen 16 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin." So, if God had given Solomon the feeling, the experience of wisdom, it seems to me that he would have lived from that rather than from faith. And so, he would have been living, as it were, from sin, in sin, rather than in a faith dependence upon God. I understand God has given him the gift of wisdom. But I don't believe for a moment that Solomon was, that God wanted Solomon to ever live a moment of his life apart from faith in God. We live by faith in God and his word, not by feelings, not by experiences, visions, dreams, or emotions. We need to understand this. I am a glass half empty kind of guy. And there have been numerous times in my life when I've been very, very discouraged and just ready just to throw the towel in. Doesn't take much to my shame to make me very discouraged. And I have to say that there have been times when God has ministered to me um, through a kind word that somebody spoke. And I thank the Lord for that. There have been other times when God has ministered to me by just working circumstances out to where I go, this was just a God thing. When Patsy and I were first married, I spent the first year of my life, of our marriage, thinking I have made the biggest mistake of my life. Now, that's stupid. If you know Patsy, you know, that is stupid. And yet, and I couldn't tell her that. Sweetheart. I just want to let you know <laughs> I think we messed up. No. So I just had to carry that. And I never told her. And God blessed us. And it was a, it was a, a fantastic first year of marriage. Even though she only gave it a nine. And she said that it was because nothing's perfect, she said. So she couldn't give it a ten. <laughs> but I had to do a pastoral internship that, that year um, through seminary. One of my course requirements. And... Um, And so we um, went out to North Carolina for a pastoral internship. The day we were to leave, um, she miscarried. And the pregnancy was diagnosed as a partial molar pregnancy, which we had never heard of, either one of us. And it means there's no baby, but there's just a, a cancerous cluster where the placenta is. Quite frightening. And again, and I have going through my mind, I've made the biggest mistake in my life, even before this ever happened. And now it just now, when that, when you're thinking stuff like that, any negative thing just piles on. And people were just amazingly good to us. And when we got out to North Carolina, I still was just thinking, God, I'm done. You know, I've 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 messed up the biggest decision that you can ever make. Um, you're not going to be able to. You'll never use me whatsoever. And it was like God just opened the doors of heaven. Those dear people loved us and accepted us. And and I emphasize us. Because I knew God was just showing me in my thickness, in my dullness, my stupidity. God needed to show me experientially that I was dead wrong. And that the ministry that he is giving me is because of Patsy and not in spite of her. And that's why I tell people whenever I travel, I love to have her with me because everybody treats me better. Uh, We shouldn't, God in his mercies, he gives us experiences. That's what I'm trying to say. He knows when we need experience. He knows when the only thing that's going to encourage our heart is something circumstantial. But we don't seek experiences. We seek Jesus. And the one who is the shepherd of our souls, he knows exactly what we need. But the emphasis of God's word is not on dreams, visions, experiences. It is on the word of God. What sustains the weary soul? The Bible says the word of God. Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul said in Romans 10, faith comes not by experiences, not by visions, not by dreams. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It is God's word that we ultimately need. And it's God's word. That says to Solomon, I have done it. There are other things that God has promised us besides wisdom to those who would ask. He has said that we have right standing with God, we have been justified by faith. But do you ever feel condemned? There are any times in your life where you just have this heavy blanket of condemnation. God says you are justified. You have peace with God. God says that our sins have been forgiven. The certificate of debt against us has been canceled. But do you ever still feel guilty? Do you ever feel like you're still just not free? From what you know you have done. God says you are forgiven. And there is no certificate of debt against you. Jesus has paid for it all. There is nothing in the Bible that says that we will wake up every morning and feel justified. Feel forgiven. I'm still looking for that verse in the Bible. It doesn't say I'm going to feel forgiven and justified. But it says I am. I am. And I must stand and rest on what the God has said in his word. His indwelling presence is another one. The Bible says that when you place your faith in Christ, that the spirit of God comes to live within you. It doesn't say you are going to feel his presence every day. There are times we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and he does not feel very near. There are times it seems that our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. But he indwells you and he will never leave you or forsake you. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you will feel his presence every day. These are all based on the word of God And a response of faith to what God has said. Not feelings. We raise our children to stop reacting to their feelings. And live in the truth. And yet many times as Christians we are the most immature. Because we allow our hearts to be governed by emotion. Rather than the truth of God and his word. We're living in a time when people are being told it is virtuous to question their sexuality. Unbelievable. Maybe you're a woman trapped in a man's body. Maybe you're a man trapped in a woman's body. Are you kidding me? If ever there was an area where we just have to say God said he created us male and female. And I take it for the truth of what God has said irrespective of what I feel. I'm not denying that people may feel contrary to what their sex indicates. But we don't live by feelings. We live by the truth of what God has said by faith. The same is true of our marriage vows. The same is true of any and every responsibility that we have. We don't just jettison everything because of feelings. But we are to live as men and women of God who stand on the truth of what God has said, despite what our feelings may tell us. We don't pursue dreams. Solomon didn't ask for a dream. It was unsolicited. But in the context of the dream, he asked for enabling. We don't analyze dreams. Oh, my word, what a recipe for disaster. Goodness gracious. If there was a surefire way of messing up your life, it's write down your dreams and think about them and analyze them every day. Wow. You will go crazy. I remember a guy in seminary told me that he dreamt we were all living in a in a dorm on campus, and he had the dream that some bad guy came up on the floor, and every he had all the guys in the dorm pushed up against the end of the hallway. And and then me, I come out of nowhere. This is his dream. And I jump, jump on the guy's, bag, guy's back. And I'm, and I'm fighting him from, you know, holding onto his back. And I'm going, come on, guys, help. And I'm thinking, that would never happen in a million years. <laughs> I'm glad you think that I'm the brave one here. But no, that would never happen. I have vivid dreams. Most of you weren't here at the time because this happened maybe 20 years ago. But... Um, Patsy and I came limping into church one Sunday. We were really hurting. She could hardly walk because her hip, and I could hardly put any weight on my foot. And the reason is because that night I had had the dream that a rabid possum was attacking me. And I kicked that possum as hard as I could. And my wife screamed because I kicked her in the rear. And I screamed because I almost broke my big toe. And we're both hobbling into church. And I'm saying, What happened? I thought I was kicking a possum. And I know some of you men thought, I've got to remember that. <laughs> my mom dreamt one time that my brother, who was, I guess, in junior high, came into the house smoking a joint. Oh, my word. And my mom said, what are you doing? And my brother said, smoking a joint. Peace, baby. <laughs> and my mother grabbed him by the head and started shaking his head. It was all a dream. But she got my dad's head. <laughs> <laughs> and he up, oh, wake up! He said his head was sore for a week after that crazy things we dream. In my 66 years of dreaming, I've had three dreams where I thought maybe God was speaking to me. I don't know. One, I had a very traumatic dream that one of my kids had been sexually assaulted. And I had never had a dream like that. Well, I didn't know whether God was saying something to me, but I, it, if I knew I needed to step up my prayers for my kids. I can't say that was a warning from God or anything, but I know that the Lord used it to really step up my prayers for my kids. A few years back, we were doing a a project up at his hill, and it was to run about $30,000. I had a dream that a different project that had nothing to do with what we were doing was gonna have an overrun, and instead of 30,000, it was gonna be 100,000. Next day, the project manager came to me and said, Charlie, I've really got bad news. This $30,000 project's gonna become a $100,000 project. And I felt like God had prepared me. That's never happened in my life. The exact amount I dreamt about the night before. And I was all worked up about it in my dream. So when the staff member came and told me, I'm just going, well, God knows. And God took care of it. When I was in college, I had a dream that God told me to go to India. Be a missionary. And I packed up my suitcases and I was walking out in my dream, walking out of the college And one of my good friends walked up and said, what are you doing? And I said, God's told me to go to India. And he's told you to go too. (laughs) School finished about a week later. It was the end of the spring semester. And it wasn't two or three weeks. I got a postcard from India. And it was my friend in my dream. And he said, I'm in India. Where are you? (laughs) I don't know why that happened. I don't know if that was from the Lord or not. I never went to India. (laughs) This is what I know. We are told to seek God. We are told to seek wisdom. We are told to ask for wisdom. We are never told to seek visions and dreams. They can happen. I believe they do. But they should be unsought and unsolicited. And when they do happen, they are not in themselves authoritative. They must be consistent with Scripture. They must be placed under Scripture. And when they happen, we should confer with others. In Acts 16, 9 and 10, Paul was on one of his missionary journeys And they tried to go east, God said no. They tried to go north, God said no. They tried to go south, God said no. And they didn't know what to do. Well, that night, Paul had a vision. And it says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And they get this. And when he had seen the vision immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding, all of us, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So I gather from this that Paul didn't wake up the next morning and said, guys, this is what we're supposed to do. Paul woke up and said, guys, this is a vision I just had last night. What do you think? And collaboratively, they got their heads together and they prayed about it and they said, well... It seems to all of us, the consensus to all of them, this is what God would have us to do. And God, in fact, verified that. So Paul didn't just run off on some vision that he'd had. He conferred with those whose lives it would impact. What do you think? Now this leads us up to the next portion of this chapter. Verse 16. Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O Lord, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And it happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. And the woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, He was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, for the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, the dead one is your son, the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Now I can guarantee you this. They did not speak the way I just read that. (laughs) This is where you're supposed to use your sanctified imagination. Okay? Okay? This actually happened. And just as this, this woman described, went to bed, she slept on her baby, killed her baby, swapped babies, she wakes up in the morning holding a dead baby, realizes it's not her baby, her dead baby's with the other woman, and so you know what happened next. They are screaming. They are fighting. And people would have come running. Now I know no authority on ancient Hebrew culture, but the way I understand this is that the elders in the neighborhood would have been the first ones to address this. And they would have been going, whoa, (laughs) out of my league. And it gets bumped straight up to the king that day. And so now these two women are standing before the king. And from all I can see in in the text, both babies are there. The dead baby and the living baby. These women have not had time to put their makeup on. They've been fighting. They've been crying. They've been screaming. Their eyes are bloodshot. There's snot. There's tears. Their hair's all frizzed out. And the living baby is going, wah, wah, wah. (laughs) And Solomon's going, oh, my, Lanta. What am I doing here? Where in the Bible does it say what to do when two women come arguing over the same baby? I don't know that verse, God. Because there isn't a verse. What am I going to do, God? Remember what God had said? I have given you wisdom. There was no way he could prepare for this. Nobody gave him any advanced knowledge of what was going to happen. No place in the Bible that tells him what to do. Now he just, all he can do, two choices, panic and walk out of the room or step into the situation by faith. It was Larry Crabb, Years ago, in a book that he wrote, almost as an aside toward the end of a book, and it became such, so, it was so responded to that he ended up writing a whole book on the subject. But he said in the book, in his observation as a professional Christian counselor, he has seen that when men are operating by fear, they step back. When a woman is operating by fear, she steps forward. When a man is operating by faith, he'll step forward. And when a woman's operating by faith, she'll step back. And that was like, whoa. And people are going, never heard that. That That is so true. So he writes an entire book about masculinity and femininity, the difference between men and women. I know this is true in my life. That as a man, when I'm operating in fear, I'm just going, you can have it. But when I'm operating in faith, it's not that the fear is gone, but I'm willing to confront the faith, the fear, and to step forward because this is what I have to do. This is my job. I give the students at His Hill every year um, assignments on projects uh, that they have to choose a a topic from 1 Corinthians, study it together as a group, and then present it in class. And so I, have, I don't I have any say-so over who signs up for which topic, but they're typically mixed groups, guys and girls in the groups. And I know what's going to happen every time. The guys come into this presentation, they're going to have to talk all my word. I'm going to have to listen to my own voice, and they're scared to death. biggest fear a man has is public speaking. And the girls are going, you guys going to lead? And the guys are going, you can lead. Well, if you don't do we're going to fail if you don't do something. Well, well I can take an F, not a problem. <laughs> you know, and, well, I can't. And so, and so there's this, and it's, and it's difficult. They always work it out, and they give great presentations. But I know the dynamic, because the, the guys in fear are going, you can have it. And the girls in fear are going, I'm not going to take an F. I'm going to step forward. This is the way our sexuality impacts us when we're living by faith or by fear. All this to say, when Solomon came in that day, and this is dropped in his lap, and these women are screaming, and the baby is screaming, and now the adrenaline is flowing. None of us do well in these circumstances. This is why why firefighters and police officers and airline pilots, they all are taking classes all the time, simulating disasters. Because we all know when the adrenaline is flowing, the brain freezes. And so, but, so there's no preparation for Solomon. He, has, he had no idea, and yet he's thinking clearly. He's thinking concisely, practically. And it is so otherworldly that the people are going to go, it is otherworldly. This is God. There is no way that a man could be this clear, this sharp, with this kind of pressure, unless it's God. God. So we know what Solomon did. Verse 23, the king said, the one who says, this is, the one says, this is my son who is living and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is dead one and my son is a living one. And the king said, get me a sword. Now again, the words are just coming out of his mouth. He by faith stepped into the situation. Now I'm robbing from the New Testament here, but Jesus said, When the crisis hits and you're being put on account for your faith, don't worry about what to say. I will tell you what to say. I think that's exactly what Solomon is experiencing here. But he has to, in his heart, step forward because it's his job. It's no one else's job. And he steps forward in his heart, God, I'm trusting you. And he looks around the room, bring me a sword. Oh, my. And then he says, get the sword, verse 23, get me a sword, 24, and then verse 25, divide the living child in two, give one half to one, and give the half to the other. Oh, man. And everybody in the palace is going, are you kidding us? We have got a madman for a king. He killed Adonijah, his brother. He killed Joab. He killed Shimei. And now he's going to kill a baby. And nobody thought any different. And that soldier's now, I think he's grabbed that baby and he's got the sword up and he's going to hack that baby into two pieces and he is not going to stop for either one of those women because the king said, do it. Verse 26, Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, "Oh my Lord, king, my, O oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him, for she is the mother. And when all of Israel heard the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Solomon... Exposed the truth. He did not manipulate the people. That is an important distinction. There are times when God will work to expose us, not to manipulate us. I had a staff member one time that I could, if I sat up, he sat down. If I sat down, he sat up. There was just nothing that we could agree on. Patsy and I felt like the Lord was encouraging us to go um, on a short trip to the Philippines um, to um, view firsthand a ministry there that His Hill had been supporting for a long time and which Bernie Bible Church now supports. I knew that this one guy would be opposed. And in fact, he was. I felt like this is an opportunity for him to see his heart. And so as I presented it to the staff, because I wanted their input because I'm spending his hill money and that's going to impact all of us. And so I said, I wanted just to go around the room and just give me your honest assessment whether I should make this trip or not. And he started to speak and I said, I want you to wait. And we went all the way around the room and every single person said, by all means, you need to do this. And then the guy who always objected, he says, Okay, I think you should go. And afterwards I told him. I said, I had you go last because I knew that you would object and I wanted you to hear everybody else first. And he was so angry. He said, you manipulated me. I go, I, I, I was not trying to solicit a response from you. I just wanted you to see the truth of how resistive you are to me on everything we do. That's all this was about, exposing the truth. God is in the business of exposing the truth, not manipulating us. He will expose the truth and then give us the free choice of what to do with what he's just revealed. At the beginning, Solomon appeared to be just an uncaring problem solver. Get these women out of my throne room. But then he became a truth revealer. And in the end, he is compassionately restoring and defending and protecting. And I believe this is where God wants us all to end up. He may use us to solve the problem, to, I'm sorry, to, to, to expose the truth, to expose the problem. But that's not the end. But to move next to where we are part of the solution, restorer, defender, protector, this is what God is ultimately after. There is no reasonable explanation for how Solomon reacted in this crisis experience other than God and his simple dependence upon him. I appreciate the quote by Oswald Chambers, there is no circumstance in which we cannot abide in Christ, including when the adrenaline is flowing and the brain is frozen, we can still abide in Christ. Our lives should be unexplainable apart from God. And this is why God calls the weak and the foolish, so that He works in and through us. He gets the glory. God, did you catch it, vindicates His choice of Solomon. Solomon did not have to vindicate himself. All Solomon had to do was by faith step into the situation that God allowed to come into his life. And in doing so, the response the the, the consequence was so extraordinary that God gets the glory and everybody's going, he's supposed to be king. If anybody had any doubts out there about whether Solomon was supposed to be king, that's been put aside. Solomon is the right guy to be king. God seldom Ever vindicates himself. You got to search through a lot of the Bible to find God defending himself. But he is in the business of defending you and me. We don't need to defend ourselves. Let God do it. And it's so sweet when God does it. And it's never sweet when we do it. And the last observation I'd make. They saw that the wisdom of God was in him. God is getting all the glory. At this moment in time, Solomon is good with that. That's going to change. By the time we get over to chapter 10 and 11, he's not good with it anymore. And Solomon is taking God's glory for himself. It is not easy in our pride, in our sinful natures, to let God be praised. Can we live with letting God get all the glory? Can we live with being so lightly esteemed that when good comes from us, people don't praise us, they praise God? See, it sounds real good, doesn't it? All the people said, look, the wisdom of God is in Solomon. And Solomon's going, you mean I didn't have anything to do with that? Not at this point, but that's what he's going to do later. Can you be so humble that people would look at your life and go, I would never credit you for anything except for being a disaster? God gets all the credit. And I can stand here and say, that's all I want, it's just for Jesus to get all the credit. But our hearts are so deceitful, aren't they? And it hurts. It humiliates us. When people go, really? You? God used you that way? That's amazing. And instead of saying, you're right, I'm more amazed than anybody, we kind of get a little offended. But all praise and glory go to Him. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Lord, thank you again for your word and for your dealings practically in human affairs. You are not a distant God. You are near. You indwell us. You love us. And you are at work in us for your good pleasure. And We do pray that you would get all the glory and we would be good with that.